1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. Now, this is a podcast all about words and language. And traditionally, I would be sitting, well, I am sitting still, in my little cubbyhole in Oxford. And Giles would be in his dungeon or his basement in uh, London. And we would be talking to each other on Zoom. And it's a tiny bit different today, Giles, because I can pretty much just see your nose and you don't look to be at home. Where on earth are you?
0: I'll tell you what I am. I've tried to move the camera a bit away so you can see what I am. I'm in a London black cab taxi. This was yeah. my first mistake, except he's a very nice driver. But I should have either walked or found a, a tube station and then taken a bus to get back to my home and my basement studio. But I've had rather a long day, and I've got two suitcases with me. Because last night I was doing my show, Charles Brandworth can't stop talking, in <laughs> uh, Yeovil which is in Somerset, and to get mm-hmm. from Yeovil to London, I had to take quite a slow train this morning from Yeovil by all sorts of beautiful places, including Salisbury, to get to London. Mm-hmm. I then had to yeah. go to, well, I won't give you too much detail, a variety of bookshops to sign copies of my new book, Elizabeth and Intimate <laughs> Portrait. And I had much excitement, particularly at Hatchards, where I signed the books on a table where Oscar Wilde, in the 1880s, signed copies of his books, Pretty exciting.
1: Oh, how, that is exciting.
0: Then I walked to the Grosvenor House Hotel where I met up with Rory Stewart. Do you know who I mean by Rory Stewart? Oh,
1: True. I'm a huge fan of Rory People Stewart. People I, I have to say, I wish he had become the leader. Well, I think um, he does I as well. I think he talked a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: He would like to have become prime minister. I think he still has yeah. ambitions. Anyway, he's a very mm-hmm. interesting and amusing person. But he's so knowledgeable. He's very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. And uh, we had a fun time together. Uh, And then I said, I must go now because my friend Susie Dent is waiting for me. And he said, oh, you know Susie? I said, I know Susie.
1: (laughs) If you knew Susie like I knew Susie. Yes, he will never have heard of me.
0: I went down and I got into a cab and I said Mm -hmm. to the cab driver, how long will it take to get to my address? And he said, oh, you'll be there in 40 minutes we we'll get there just at the time we were due to start our recording. I said, thank you. In I get, and then we get to somewhere called Parsons Green. And the traffic yeah. comes to a standstill. And it's still to standstill. I'm waiting to get across something called Putney Bridge. Right. So this is going to be our first, literally, The Something Rhymes With Purple Roadshow. I'm on the road. <laughs> You're in the studio.
1: And do you know what? You actually sound better than you do quite often at home i don't know what it is but the acoustics are very good i can see people walking past yep. far more quickly than uh, you seem to be going
0: i mean this is i've just come up the king's road chelsea it's a lovely part of town and it's a warm yep. day i mean what i should really do is get out and just walk home which i could do in about half an hour but i've got these two cases because yep. during the show last night i take on my props and my sound equipment and a variety of jumpers to wear in the show. Oh, and all of that. yeah. So I'm, I'm rather burdened. And also, wait for this. I went to the Groven House Hotel and look what they gave me. This is a box of <gasps> lovely park room scones for me to take oh, into my wife. Oh, you
1: definitely can't take those out into the stifling heat. But oh, I how amazing. You,
0: I, I'm lost, really. I'm lost. Uh, which is appropriate yeah. because you suggested this week's subject should be maps, cartography, mm. etc. Yes. So yes. Shall we do a purple episode on the move?
1: Let's kick off because I'm not completely sure where you are on the map. Um, and so, as you say, it seems entirely fitting. What well, shall I tell you about the word map itself? Please. That is, uh, I mean, obviously we, we have been making maps since uh, the beginning of time. I mean, the history of cartography, it's the kind of development throughout human history. And maps have been Probably one of the most important human inventions, I guess, for millennia. Um, and so we're not completely sure when the earliest maps were made, but some of the earliest surviving maps, in fact, I think the possibly oldest surviving map was engraved on a mammoth tusk. Can you believe that? Which dates back to 25,000 BC, which was in the Czech Republic, which is incredible. Um, And I say all this as a backdrop to the fact that map actually as a word is is fairly recent from that perspective, early 16th century. And it is from the medieval Latin mappa mundi, which means sheet of the world. And by sheet here, they mean a sort of big sheet of paper and mundi, as I say, of the world. And cartography is the writing of cards, I suppose, if you take it in its most literal uh, sense. And that card goes back to the Latin charter, which was a papyrus leaf. And as you know, I love the beginnings of these kind of things. I love the beginnings of, well, paper itself comes from papyrus, book comes from a Germanic word meaning a beech tree, you know, all of those. I just think, I think it's so wonderful. That we still preserve their history in in those words, but yeah, map surprisingly recent.
0: The Mappa Mundi was abbreviated to ma- map. There, there was a Mappa Mundi, a map of the world, but map map as yeah, map on its own is a contraction yeah. of Mappa, and that's 16th yeah. century. That's around the time of Shakespeare.
1: Exactly, and as you say, there was the the Mappa Mundi that was famous. 13th century map of the world that's now in hereford cathedral i think and it's round um and it's it's quite typical of maps of the time because it's got Jerusalem at its centre, that map. And and again, you know, maps, a bit like language itself, actually, maps are wonderful preservations of how the world was viewed. And you can see how maps and language intersect there because ocean, for example, looks back to um, a Greek word that meant the sort of outer sea because they thought that the world was kind of girdled, if you like, by a very large... Stream almost that encircled the Earth's disk. And they thought the Mediterranean was in the middle of the Earth, so Mediterranean middle of the Earth. So, you know, language and maps intersect here in terms of how we viewed our, our geography.
0: When did the noun, a map, become the verb, to map? Quite
1: quickly. 1589. Ah. So not long after, actually. 1527, map as a noun. 1589, first record as map as, as a verb. Did you have... I mean, I was, I was obsessed with globes when I was little. And in fact, when I left Oxford University Press to join Countdown full-time, the the programme that I now work on. The the parting gift was not a a golden handshake or a golden watch or anything. It was a beautiful globe. Um, It was just the loveliest present. And, of course, atlases also were just wonderful, these physical atlases, which I'm not sure children have so much now. Did you love them?
0: I love a globe. I was at Mm. a boarding school called Beedales in Hampshire, Where they had in my day, and they have to this day, in the beautiful library, which is an arts and crafts building uh, created uh, 100 years ago now. They had at the end of the library, which is all beautiful oak beams, this huge uh, globe about three foot high on a stand. And you could stand by it and twirl it round. And it was lit from within. So at night time, oh, in this thing. library, as the light was falling outside, inside was this glowing globe. And I think when I last visited the school library, they'd kept the globe from my day, from the 1960s. So it was still the Soviet Union. Uh, countries uh. in Africa had different names from the names they have now. And I love that because, as you yeah. say, an old globe gives you the story of what the world was like once upon a
1: time. Exactly. And what about atlases? Because I remember poring over this colour atlas that I had. Uh, that just that was just one of my all-time favourite books, together with the Britannia. Britannica, not Britannia. Britannica, Encyclopedia, and also Pears, Encyclopedia of Medicine. Those are, <laughs> those are my three you, books.
0: yes, you were a little bit of a reference. You were a reference <laughs> book, girl. That's fun. You mentioned <laughs> the word atlas there. Now, atlas yes. is a character. And was he the character who yeah. carried the globe?
1: on his shoulders. Is that why an atlas is so-called? Yeah, so he was a titan or a giant in Greek mythology and he was punished for taking part in a rebellion against the gods and his punishment was to bear the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And the atlas or the collection of maps is called an atlas because the early ones were printed with an illustration of atlas bearing the world on his back on the title page. So uh, the Atlantic Ocean also gets it name, its name from Atlas. The Atlantic actually originally referred to the mountains before it referred to a sea. And we have the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And it's, I, love, I love the sort of idea of this. The Atlas Mountains were thought to be so high that they were imagined to be holding up the sky. Isn't that beautiful?
0: When I was a little boy, there were in newspapers and magazines advertisements that you would send off to get a kit to turn you into Mr Atlas. In fact, I think they were advertised by a character called Mr. Hansel, who had huge biceps and was (laughs) a a muscular figure. And I wrote off for one of these kits, which I found the other day. And my wife said to me, oh, and there was a a similar kit for girls. She said, mine was to build my biceps. And then she began saying a a phrase from her childhood, where she said, there used to be a sort of slogan, I must and must improve my bust. Um, oh,
1: yes. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, yes. And you used to do these kind of exercises which I'm now showing you on Zoom where you just arch back your your arms. Yes. I, I only remember that from Carry On films, I think. <laughs> that That's where I remember that phrase from. So Mr Atlas was a sort of predecessor to uh, the British Mr Motivator, was he? Yes. And there was also Mr
0: Universe, I mean,
1: oh yes,
0: I mean, Big basically, muscle. these were these were strong men, and if you want, if you were like me, a weed, I was a weed, uh, so sort of concave chested, uh, weed uh-huh. with no arms of any kind. I aspired to be this gorgeous muscular figure, but it never have came you ever to pass. Have
1: you ever done weights? Weights at all?
0: No, I'm I'm, I'm useless. I'm now reaping the whirlwind of not having done those exercises when I was young. I'd like to become an old Mr. Atlas. So Atlas (laughs) gave his name to the Atlas. We have maps, we have Atlases, we have the Atlas Mountains, we have the Atlantic Ocean, Continue taking me through this uh, cartographer's dream.
1: Yes. Well, we have globe, uh, which we've just talked about, and that simply goes back to a Latin word, and it's it's all about spherical objects.
0: Oh, forgive me. Did the globe exist when people thought the world was square? Because there was a time when people thought you'd get to the edge of the world and fall off.
1: Well, yes, that's very true. And uh, Let me look again. If I get the OED, and we can try and map it literally to its history. 1450 a spherical or rounded body and then in early astronomy um, in the 16th century it was the sphere occupied by the sun the moon or a planet so it was a planetary sphere rather than the whole earth and then 1542... A spherical representation of the Earth with its map on the surface. So, yeah, the globes and you could teach, actually to teach geography was known as teaching the globes, which is quite nice. Mm. So, yeah, we're looking at 16th century here. And then, of course, you also get the golden orb that is part of a king or queen's regalia. So, yeah, so that all goes back to the Latin for a rounded object, which also obviously gives globule and that kind of thing. The uh, oldest surviving terrestrial globe is something wonderfully called the Erdapfel. So the Erdapfel, I mean, if if you were to take that name in modern German, it means potato, but it's not related to that because potatoes hadn't yet been brought from America to Europe. So this was produced from 1490 to 1492. And it simply means the apple of the earth. And it's obviously so known because it it was drawn on paper and then pasted on a layer of parchment around a globe. And the Americas aren't included in that, interestingly enough. So it shows a really huge Eurasian continent and then an empty ocean between Europe and um, Asia, which is quite nice. It is fascinating, isn't it? I, I wish I I wasn't very good at geography at school, but I can see the romance of cartography and the history of cartography. I just think it's, it's quite magical.
0: The thing that confused me at school, but I loved when I was a schoolboy, a film was made of the Jules Verne story Around the World in Eighty Days. Yeah. And I never quite understood the end of the story, because he arrives in back in London, he sets off Phineas Fogg from the Reform Club, and he's got to to win the bet, he's got to travel around the world in 80 days and he arrives back on what he thinks is the 81st day but because he's past the equator or something, in fact, it's still the 80th day. Uh, I don't understand that. Do you understand that?
1: Not really, but I do know that it was quite a good series with David Tennant quite recently. Um, so we could always go and, uh, and and watch that. I did actually watch the first one and then had loads of writing to do, so I missed the rest. But um, yeah, I love David Tennant. I can tell you a little bit about various words. I mean, we have topography, which is the arrangement of the physical features of an area, um, and that goes back to the Greek topos, a place. We have a toponym, which is a word named after a place. And we have utopia as well, which Sir Thomas More in 1516, he coined that word utopia because it was an imaginary island with a, you know, perfect social and political system. But the name is really telling because it implies that this place doesn't exist because he got utopia from the Greek, a Greek word, a prefix meaning not, and the topos meaning a place. So, there's no place. It's nowhere. Oh. Um,
0: so, utopia is a non-existent place. So, you're looking yeah. for your utopia. In fact, it will never exist by definition.
1: Exactly. And and I can tell you a little bit about, I don't know, the, the latitude and the longitude. I mean, Well, latitude, simply from Latin, meaning broad. Longitude, obviously, long. Nothing too exciting to say say there. But we have meridian. And the use in astronomy of of meridian is due to the fact that the sun crosses a meridian at noon because it goes back to the Latin medius, meaning middle, and then dies, meaning a day. So we have that. We have a hemisphere, which is half, you know, half the celestial sphere, if you like. We have the equator which uh, is from medieval Latin. It means to make equal. We have a scale, which cartographers talk about quite a lot. So the the word scale that has, well, three, three main meanings, I think, and two of them share an ancestry. So the scale of fish and reptiles has the same root as the scale that's used for weighing, believe it or not, and are both related to shell. So that's quite uh, quite a family. And then the scale that's used in music and measuring, that goes back to the Latin scala, meaning a ladder. And ultimately, it's from uh, a verb meaning to climb. And you will find that in ascend, descend condescend um all of those came into english from "scandere," meaning to climb but it also gave us the scale that cartographers use which kind of i suppose climb up the map and is this related? Really, this is the same as a musical scale is la exactly. scala the opera house it must be named musical scale yeah because it's it ascending descending it's all about climbing which is quite lovely should we take a break while you're in the car do you do you uh, are you moving how are you getting on i can't
0: uh, well we're hardly moving i'd say we're uh, just to keep uh, listeners attuned and abreast so far this podcast has cost <laughs> you listeners 61 pounds 40 uh, that, uh, that's what's on the clock but we're going to yeah on the driver and i until we get there because um i'm hoping it takes cards because no. i haven't got that sort of cash but let's ta- let's take a break and i fear after the break you'll still find me where well, I am. Oh, by the way, I want to say, this will interest you. I've been told recently that in television and radio now, they're no longer saying take a break. We've, we've now got, no, we've got now sort of seamless listening. So the idea is if you say the word take a break, people oh, think it's yes. going to be an ad and they avoid it, uh, or they change to something different. So now what we have is suddenly people hear an advertisement in the middle of nothing. So if listeners, in weeks to come on our podcast, you don't hear us say let's take a break, that's because the producers have decided, oh, We're into the world of seamless broadcasting now. And you just merge the program with the advertisement. But with most television programs I watch, the advertisements (laughs) are better than the programs anyway. So I love the ads.
1: Well, we are back to the back of the taxi with Giles, who I can see on my Zoom feed is, I wouldn't even say crawling, to be honest, because the same red building has been behind him for the last 10 minutes. And I am in somewhere much more boring. I am in a very static place in my little study.
0: And about half an hour ago, Susie, because it would take normally only half an hour to get along the whole road, I've come from Sloan Square along the King's Road. In Chelsea, in London, and I passed a part of the the road that's known as World's End. And when I was was a little boy living in London, I loved coming to World's End because I thought it was World's End. It was sort of the end of the world. I think it was probably named after a pub called the World's End. Oh, so that we like this area. It's a lovely idea.
1: I know there's a World's End in Edinburgh, isn't it? Isn't there as well? And you've just come back from Edinburgh, but in Chelsea, it was Uh, it was a slum at some point, and. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there was a um, a pub there.
0: But no, but maybe also, maybe it was because it was once squalid. Maybe. And interesting, in this part of London, there was wealth and squalor living side mm. by side. As you know, I'm an enthusiast for Oscar Wilde. And he lived in a house not far from where I am now, in Tite Street in Chelsea. And his house, there was a house, a street of houses, a lot of artists in, lived in that street. But they were quite respectable houses. And they were quite grand houses. But literally at the back of these houses... So only one street away was a street of poverty with people living in slum conditions uh, with their their pigs and their chickens, those who were lucky enough to have a bit of livestock. So side by side in London in Victorian times was wealth, prosperity and dire poverty. Uh So maybe the world's end was because, oh, my goodness, this place is so grim. It's like the end yeah. of the world. I well, don't know.
1: That's very sad.
0: Well, if people actually listening to this do know, uh, we've got a new address, haven't we, for them to write to? Uh,
1: there is a new address. You're absolutely right. It is at com, And we love hearing from people. We're going to do, I think, a little bonus episode um, on some of these. But I'm just going to tell you one of my all-time favourite, well, two favourite etymological facts, if I may, to do with geography before we get to the correspondence. One is the word archipelago. Because an archipelago is a sort of group of islands, isn't it? But actually, originally, if you take it all the way back to its Greek roots, it means chief sea, because it was actually originally used as a proper name for the Aegean Sea. And the current sense arose because the Aegean Sea has a large number of islands. So that was quite a big shift. And talking of islands, I love this fact. It's one of you know how I love how English often evolves by mistake. We, uh, or rather Renaissance scholars, thought that it would be nice to show the classical heritage of English by taking some of the old spellings and mixing them up and inserting some, some letters which were always silent and have remained silent just to show off the Latin heritage. And Ireland is one of them. Okay, so they took... The word island which it was spelled in various ways, but including I L A N A A N D which is quite simple. And they thought, well, oh, no, but this goes back to the Latin insula. So we're going to stick an S in there. We may not pronounce it, but we're going to stick it in there. And so spelling and, and sound, you know, that, I mean, they divorced quite a long time ago, but it was part of that kind of rift. But actually they got it wrong because actually it goes back to a Viking word, not a Latin word. And by rights, we should be talking about an eagle land that we live on an eagle land not an island at all Mm. and it was just purely a mistake because they thought they knew their latin better than anyone else um so i love that anyway should we go on to our correspondence
0: yes please do but i've loved learning all about the the world of cartography maps and thinking about the good old days and I aspire to be Mr.
1: Atlas. Oh, there is so much more. And any cartographers out there will be banging their heads saying, but why didn't they mention X, Y and Z? In which case, please do write to us, because I know there's a lot more we can say. It's purple people at purplepeopleatsomethingrhymes.com.
0: Well, who's been in touch this week? I haven't got the correspondence with me, because so I'm sitting in the back <laughs> of a London black yes. cab. Yes, okay. Um, cab is short, incidentally, for cabriolet, yes. isn't it? Yes,
1: uh, it's short for taxi. Taximeter cabriolet. So, oh. if you want me to unpick that a little bit, so taximeter is—I mean, obviously, it's there because it actually has a a, a meter in it, and the cabriolet—it it kind of got it. it got a little bit jumbled along the way because um, people thought it had something to do with a goat, which in Latin was caper, gave us caper, for example. Mm, and Capricorn. And Capricorn. And they thought that the carriage's motion of those original ones were a bit like a goat's kind of leap, which is quite nice. So um, a cabriolet was was a light two-wheeled carriage, wasn't it? With a hood um, drawn by a horse.
0: But that's still appropriate to me because the taxi meter part, we've got up to exactly £66. Pounds, <laughs> and the cabriolet, we are jerking forward a little bit like a uh, a, a goat with whooping cough.
1: Oh. We don't
0: move and then we sort of jerk forward <laughs> an inch or two. Who, who's been in touch?
1: So, our first note is from Joe in Geelong. Is that how you spell it? Geelong in Australia?
0: Yes, it is. I, I remember that because I think our present king, King Charles III, when he was a teenager, uh, had to go to show, as it were, interest in the Commonwealth, the commitment to the Commonwealth. He had to go to a school in Geelong. Ah. So I feel I've known that name for many years.
1: Okay, along with Wanganui, wasn't there in in New Zealand? I think quite a few of the royal family went there. Anyway, this is from Joe who says, Hi, Giles and Susie. Can you please help with something that popped uninvited into my head? I have that experience all the time. Okay, lust, lusty, lustful, lusting, luster. Wait, what? Does luster have anything to do with lust? Um, And she very swiftly says that the podcast is one of the highlights of her week. So thank you. Joe. I think I really wanted them to be connected but I sort of knew that they weren't but you know they are so similar that you're completely forgiven for wondering. so luster first of all as in you know that silver gives off a beautiful luster that is from a Latin word lustrare which simply means to illuminate so if something is lustrous it radiates it is illuminating lust on the other hand is simply the German for want so you use it quite often in German without any sense of sexual desire. So you say, ich habe Lust auf Schokolade. I fancy some chocolate. But the fancy bit is really quite mm. innocent. Ich habe, ich habe Lust auf Rotwein. I, I would like, I fancy a glass of red wine. Or I would like a glass of red wine. Or I want one. Um, but we took it and, and kind of gave it a bit of umph and transferred it into sexual desire. So the German and the English here are quite different. But I'm sorry to disappoint you, Joe. they're not actually related at all. Uh, it'd be wonderful if they were kissing cousins, quite literally, but they are not. And the second module, because I know you can't see this one either, Is from Colleen in New Hampshire. I mean, honestly, so global, our audience. We love it. So Colleen says, I hear and read the word chuffed in British works, but I don't think there is a true American synonym. I don't think I've ever heard or read chuffed in an American work. It seems like a softer form of proud. When do you use that that word? And again, she says lovely things about the podcast. So thank you, Colleen. I would say if you're really pleased or you're satisfied, you are chuffed. I, I really use it often and often when I'm sort of pleasantly surprised by something. So I'm really chuffed to see that so-and-so read my book or I'm really chuffed to read that. You know, it's, it's usually about sort of something that gives you pleasure. It's quite a sort of um, personal thing rather than I was chuffed to see that Giles met Rory Stewart, for example. So I, I think it is it is about personal pleasure and it actually goes back to only to the 1950s, but its root is, is much older, um, in fact 300 years old, and that's an English dialect word chuff, meaning plump or pleased. But just to confuse matters, in the mid-19th century a completely different use of chuff came about with the opposite meaning. It meant surly or gruff, so actually for a while to be chuffed was also being used to mean disgruntled so that is confusing but that one thankfully died away it's one of those rare occasions where we hang on to the positive rather than the negative is there a bird called a chuff i was i was thinking exactly that and i was thinking is it a chuff or is it a chaffinch but i can't find it in a standard dictionary i can find the chaffinch i can you have a, a train chuffing along don't you And that's the sound thing. That's the puffing sound, chuff, chuff, as it goes along.
0: Oh, yes. As as in a train, the noise a train makes, the chuff, chuff.
1: And I also might say to you, Giles, if you didn't have your two suitcases, get off your chuff and walk because it can also mean buttocks in slang Um, but i can't find and i'm just going to double check again use of chuff as a bird Um, because i had exactly that thought ah there is okay and this is embarrassing for me not you Um, it is spelled c-h-o-u-g-h that is the chuff that is a black eurasian north african bird of the crow family Uh, Um, and it is probably imitative. So I don't know if that's imitative of the sound it makes, um, presumably. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I should have known that spelling was different. So there you go, two very good questions, and I will remind you that it's now time for my trio. (laughs) I want
0: to hear your trio, and the nice thing is feel free to let it take as long as you want because my driver is smiling already up to £70.60, and he's learning so (laughs) much at the same time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> can you remember a poem off by heart for us in a minute, do you reckon?
0: Well, that's going to be the challenge. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. <laughs> there may be a short one I can muster. Okay, yeah, well, I'll give it you know. a go in a moment. All
1: right. Uh, okay, so the, my three words today. Uh, the first one, I don't know if you're feeling this, Charles. The fantods If you've got the fantods you are just... It's a kind of indescribable feeling of uneasiness. So you just can't rest. And there's a lovely description of it in a US magazine, actually, from 1835, which the wonderful dictionary Merriam-Webster mentions. And it's like this... There is an indescribable complaint which will never allow a moment's repose to mind or body, which nothing will satisfy, which allows of no beginning and no ending, which wheels round the mind like a squirrel in its cage, ever moving but still making no progress, it is called. The phantods. I love that word, to have the fantods. That's my first. The second is hopefully never going to be useful to anybody, but should you go to the doctors or the hospital and come out with something that you didn't go in for, such as an infection or, a, you know, something that was inadvertently caused by a doctor or a medical professional, that is latrogenic didn't even know that word existed. So you might have a latrogenic complaint, which means it was caused by a doctor, but very rare, thankfully. And the second one is, well, I tweeted the other day, it was one of those days where I may or may not have been commenting on uh, topical events, but also I was feeling that it was that kind of day for myself. I was arsling, A-R-S-L-I-N-G, which means shuffling backwards rather than forwards. But if you want a posher word for that, it is called retrogradation, a backwards movement a retrogradation that kind of day so um those are my trio um how, how are you doing with the memory well i tell you i was going to tell you today and i will still
0: about my poetry together project Do you know about oh, yeah. this
1: um i talked uh, yes. about this before you talked about this last year i think
0: well it, come, it must be the same time again yeah. uh, this is a project that i started a few years ago where we get Older people, people in their seventies, eighties, nineties, even somebody over a hundred, we've had involved, and younger people uh, who are at school. Yeah, get them involved to learn poems by heart, and then they get together and have tea, cake, and a bit of a poetry slam. And a couple of weeks ago, this Christmas, well, it it starts now and goes on till Christmas. This year's poetry together, called Poetry Together Twenty Three, was launched. Uh, Queen Camilla came to Fielding Primary School, which is in Ealing, mm-hmm. in London, for, for the launch. And we had older people and younger people perform poems. And then this very week, we went to the British Library. Uh, and you know the British Library well, don't you?
1: Well, not that work. well, but I know it, yes.
0: Oh, well, you must. It's It's a fantastic place, and they keep improving it. And they've just redesigned their knowledge centre there. And it's a wonderful place to be, the British Library, because you know that the British Library has literally every book ever published. Oh, I know. Birchery. It's like the
1: Bodleian in, in Oxford. Yeah. Um, and also they have wonderful people, like a friend of mine, Johnny Robinson, working there, who's a kind of curator of all sorts of things relating to language. They have brilliant exhibitions there.
0: So we had a special day there where we got, again, older people and younger people together over poetry. So if there are people listening who have a school that they know either that they're at or their children may be at or their grandchildren, or they know older people who might be interested in taking part in this because they live in a care home or just are the grandparents of people. You can find out more about it by going to our website. You simply Google www.poetrytogether.com and find out all about it how you can get involved. It happens all over the world. It's not just in the UK, but about 800 schools and old folks' homes in the UK are now taking part. Anyway, remember this one? Tell me. It's the one about the goldfish that died.
1: Oh, no, tell me, tell me.
0: I had a goldfish that died and when the children were small, our children were small, and the goldfish died and it was actually eaten by Oscar the cat. Oscar the cat was called Oscar because he was wild. We had another one called Thornton who was wilder. Anyway, Oscar the cat ate... Uh, spot the goldfish, and we couldn't have a funeral because there were no mortal remains. So we had a memorial service in the garden, and we all gathered around, and I performed a poem. Now, am I right that an ode, how would you describe an ode, O-D-E, is that a, a poem that's in honour of or as a memorial to? What's the definition of an ode?
1: It's yes, it's usually a form of address to a particular subject, and it's usually quite lyrical, I would say, and actually goes back to a Greek word meaning song, Um, because they originally sung yes so they particularly the classical poems they originally intended to be sung good
0: well i wrote this ode and i think it does qualify as an ode so it's real poetry you could sing it in fact it's an ode and it is rhyming this is a poem that rhymes it is also the shortest poem in the history of world literature and is featured in the Guinness Book of World Records as a consequence. So this is a record-breaking poem. The introduction is far longer than the poem itself. In fact, the title of the poem, which is Ode to a Late Lamented Goldfish, is um, also longer than the poem. Actually, the word late, when did the word late, late means deceased, dead, doesn't it? As well as being orata, late for something. Yes. When did those two words get merged?
1: Um, I don't know While, while you tell me your poem which I imagine is going to take 10 seconds I will look it up
0: my poem won't even take 10 seconds that's why I'm building up to it but listeners to the purple podcast across the globe pin back your luggles because I'm about to perform the shortest poem in the history of world literature certainly the shortest one written in the English language it's an ode to a late lamented goldfish it rhymes and it goes like this oh Wet. Pet. Thank you. <laughs> that's it. That's it.
1: That is that's it. That's the poem. That's my poem for oh, today. grief. So if anyone comes up with um, a poem that is just two words long, they will have ousted yes, you. Yes,
0: but mine is only seven
1: letters. Okay, that's because true. Because
0: some people claim that the uh, longest, shortest poem is is a poem written, I think, in Victorian times called Fleas, F-L-E-A-S, as in The Creature. And that poem simply goes like this, Adam, Adam, <laughs> you see? Adam, yeah. four letters, Adam, apostrophe A-D, apostrophe E-M. So that's, yeah, but that mine is shorter, I think, yes. Mine's seven, and that's eight. So I've beaten Adam, Adam by one letter. So I'm still maintaining it's the shortest poem ever written.
1: That is incredible. And just to say, I've looked up late as in the sense of happening after the expected time is from old English. So um, over, you know, well, very, very old, over a millennium old, whereas late in sense of time um, and recently deceased is from the 15th century. So yeah, 1422 is the you know so it's it actually you will often find the late lamented and that kind of thing but yeah of a person who was alive not long ago you will find late from the 15th century do you know
0: i've so enjoyed doing this podcast in the taxi i think we might do the next one in a taxi too <laughs> but i ought to keep listeners up to date with uh, the price of this yeah we're up to 77 pounds uh, on on the register okay but i'm going to reassure the driver i will add a, a tip to this Because it must be very very frustrating moving so slowly. Yeah, no, it
1: must be. But he has
0: the benefit of listening to you, Susie Dent.
1: Thank you to you um, for making the effort to come online and thank you to everybody who's listened. It means a lot to us and do please keep following us. Um, You can also follow us on social media. And for more Purple, there is also the Purple Plus Club where you can listen ad free. Something Rhymed with Purple is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It was produced by Naya Dio with additional production from Naomi Oiku, Hannah Newton, Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, and they're at the helm, thankfully hooked you up from your cab. It's Richie and can we give a shout out what's your driver's name?
0: Oh driver, what's your name so we can give you a shout out on the podcast?
1: Anas. Anas. Anas the driver. Thank you to Anas. Well, I don't know how long you're going to be there but maybe next week's podcast will might also be from the back of the cab. We'll see. I could live in a cab. This is the style.